Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Close, coming to you from the Great White North. I'm Michael Close, and I'm glad to have you with us. On this podcast, you'll hear interviews with magicians from around the planet. I try to ask questions designed to spark robust discussions, giving you information and insights you won't find anywhere else. If you enjoy these podcasts, I hope you'll stop by michaelclose.com and check out the products we have available. And now, Let's get into today's podcast. My guest today on Conversations with Close is Steve Cohen, and I am sure that uh, the name is familiar to you. Steve uh, has had a uh, premier gig for the past two decades as the uh, star of his own show, The Chamber Magic Show in New York City. He has a new book. He's the author of several books, but he has a new book out on the life and times and magic of uh, Max Molini. And I'll tell you right now, spoiler alert, I really love this book. You can read my review of it uh, in this month's newsletter. But uh, I have all sorts of questions to ask. Uh, but first, let me just say, uh, Steve Cohen, thank you for joining me today. Happy to do it. I love being able to uh, chat with you and like-minded people about my passion, Max Molini. And, you know, I was just going to say, maybe as a start to this, but, you know, obsession can be a bad thing or it can be a good thing. And in this case, uh, I really feel obsession is a very good thing because you really couldn't produce a book like that without having a, a personal obsession about uh, Max Molini as a performer and as a showman and as a businessman. And because uh, it's just a dense book. Yeah, thanks. Well, the book is, it's, you know, with all, all said and done with every page included, including indexes and, and everything, the uh, table of contents, it's a 548 page book. So it's, it's very thick. It's like, you know, I look back at it and say, how did I possibly write all of this? And the real, the real answer is thanks to the pandemic. Um, you know, I've been passionate about Malini for the past 20 years, maybe more than that now, but um, you know, I never thought I'd actually write a book about him I've been collecting memorabilia and stories and anecdotes and, you know, um, signed uh, items of his photographs and whatnot. But, um, you know, it was more just kind of in the background. Like I was trying to emulate his success and emulate his style of performing, emulate some of his magic. But um, in order to, like you said, in order to write a book like this, you have to become obsessed. And during the pandemic, you know, I couldn't perform for 16 months Right. And I was, to be honest, getting into a real funk mentally. And I, you know, was losing a lot of my uh, drive. And um, I realized I needed to do something to dive into in order to get myself out of that. And fortunately, when I came up with the idea of writing a, a big book about Max Molini, um, that really filled a gap. And I, I think I might have written this book in a fugue state because sure. I don't even remember writing half of this now. Um, but I know that I wrote it. And I know that I know all the material, but, you know, I was in such a state where I was kind of channeling myself into Malini's life and channeling myself into every detail where I was working from morning till night. I mean, countless sure. hours. Um, you know, you don't write a 550 page book, in, you know, in a snap. It was it was just countless hours where I typed so much, Michael, that the keys on my MacBook Pro actually broke off the key keyboard. <laughs> So when we make the movie of this, that'll there'll be uh, that scene will happen later on as the the flashing fingers on the keyboard go and the, the thing exactly. Oh. Um, you know, I think 
partly uh, what happens with that sometimes is that uh, you've been absorbing all this material and mentally filing things in this order and that order. And then everything just says time to let this all out. And then when it, when it comes out, it just comes out and you write and write and write and write and it all sort of uh, falls together. Um, The the other part, if you might might hop in for a second, the other part is, you know, I mentioned this also in, in the introduction when, when Vernon and Lewis Ganson worked on Melania and his magic, this is back in the publication of 1962. Um, they didn't have the internet. So they didn't have access to the newspaper databases that we have now. And, you know, a lot of these newspaper databases are free. They're available. You, know, you can log on to the library of Congress database, for example, or some, you know, other free library, um, you know, local libraries and whatnot. New York public library has a big access. Um, but then there's a lot of paid subscriptions. And, mm. you know, again, I had, you know, I've had a lot of success with my own work. So I thought, well, you know, what better use for those resources than something like this? So I actually paid quite a bit to access paid um, library uh, databases to access what we would consider in the past microfiche, but now everything is available on right. you know, searchable PDFs. Right. So I was going through thousands of articles about Mulaney's life. And so, you know, these are, these are uh, stories that were told as they were happening. So it actually made it pretty easy for me to find details that other people may have missed only because now we have those digital resources. Sure. Uh, The same thing with tracking down magic resources, having things now like uh, uh, Dennis Bears and Ask Alexander as well, just fabulous resources. Um, And, you know, the um, I'll I'll jump to the back of the book just for a moment, because uh, this sort of ties into this. Uh, One of the things at the end of the book is this remarkable timeline that shows Molini's movements pretty much through his entire life, just based, I believe, on newspaper reports, reports and accounts exactly. of magic magazines. And uh, I, right. that's fantastic. It's a fascinating That took so thing. much work. That was, that was actually, well, I should put it this way. The way that I wrote the book was I started with that database in the back that, or that timeline in the back. And by creating the timeline in the back, it actually made everything else fall into place. Of because course. I couldn't sure. have written or known his his you know his directions of traveling around. The, he traveled the, the earth eight times, and this is at a time when we only had steamships and steam uh, engines to take us you know across the the, the country. Right. So so you know without that information of knowing his his uh, wherewithal or where he was where he was in each stage of his life, it really would have been almost impossible to write the biography. Yeah, um, it's amazing. It's the amount of detail is simply remarkable. Um, a thing that I find that is um, unique about this book is that you you discuss Molini's life, but there's a very personal perspective here, and it works out okay. I mean, there are times when you don't want the author to be in the middle of the subject that he's talking about. But in your case, because uh, Molini's example is the one that you attempted to emulate, it makes that whole thing make an, a whole lot of sense. In addition to the fact that you've spent a lot of years thinking about and performing many of the routines from 
Malini's repertoire so that when you speak right. to those when you speak to those tricks you are speaking from a point of you know I've done this a thousand times 2000 times 3000 times and I was going to say I, I was going to save it for later but I'll mention it to you now I tend to read books differently than other people read books I'm not looking for the secret of the trick I'm looking for the secret that shows me the guy has done it a thousand times and that is, I can tell the people listening to this, that that kind of information is all through this book, all through this book. If you've ever had problems learning some of the, quote, classic uh, table magic stunts and things like that, things like the uh, magnetized cane or the, the knives, you know, the magnetized knives or cigars, uh, that's just one example. It's all through this book. It's really quite amazing. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the things I did not want to do was I did not want to write a book that was just, um, you know, here he was in this day, here he was in that day, here's what he did this time of his life, here's what he did that time. Because, you know, that type of book is immensely boring, right? I mean, how many magic books have you read where you, you look at it and you go, have, has great promise. Like you look at the book and say, this is going to be exciting. I'm excited to learn about Alexander Herman. I'm excited to learn about, uh, you know, Charles Bertram or whoever it is. And then you get through the book and you're like, well, I'm just reading like, you know, a timeline and there's no opinions stated. There's no, uh, you know, color in, in the, the writing. Like I wanted to make something which shows my genuine passion for the subject and then also make it interesting and kind of up to date for the current reader. Yeah. Because this is not like a book where it's it's written in some stilted language, which would make you think like you're reading a book from Professor Hoffman's era, although it looks like a book from Professor Hoffman's right. era. And that was by a design choice that we made, um, that I made. But, um, you know, aside from that, I wanted to make it feel current. So it has references to current people, it has references to Roberto Joby in there, it has re- sure. you know, references to people who, you know, we as current magicians would say, oh, okay, this guy is, he's talking to me. It's, it's not something which is referring back to something ancient that wouldn't make any it wouldn't be relevant. Yeah, and you do have contemporary um, references and resources. So, you, you know, it, uh, there's a lot of exactly what uh, Malini did that isn't definitively known. Um, you know, the, the fact that Charlie Miller, you know, spent so much time with him, and Charlie ended up being one of the tightest guys in magic, you know, a guy who just kept every secret he knew uh, yeah. to himself. But, and in particular, another reason why it's so good that this book has appeared is because, as you mentioned in the book, we've lost all the people who had personal contact with every Malini. link, every living link. Yeah. Every living link. I can't imagine anyone alive today who had any personal contact with him. And I've searched, you know, the last person I spoke to was a man who, um, his name is uh, Guido Salmagi. And he was actually the man who held Malini's head in his hands as he was dying. Oh my. And I spoke to him. Um, he was in his nineties also. And, and uh, when I spoke to him, he was next, the next door neighbor of Malini and he held Malini's head and uh, he saw his, take, him take his last breath. Wow. So that was a pretty emotional conversation. I but bet. as far as magicians go, you know, you know, I mean, obviously people like, like, uh, you know, Johnny Thompson, who had never met Malini, but had known Charlie Miller very well, uh, you know, was a great living link uh, in that way. And, um, you know, even someone like Ricky Jay, who had done an immense amount of research into Malini's life is gone. 
Um, and all the old timers who I've, you know, I've spoken to lots of people who said, oh, yes, I remember from my magic club, you know, one of our older old timers was, was, uh, you know, in touch with Malini or whatnot, but all those guys are now gone. So yeah. I'm not saying that I have any personal living link, but I feel like I've kind of channeled him in many ways, my career and my, uh, my magic. And so this book is a way for it to share with other people. You know, one of the sad things is that, is that anyone who seems to know anything about Malini has kind of kept it close to the vest and didn't want to share anything with other people. It's, it's like he's some uh, some icon where, which we can never actually, uh, you know, speak of. It's almost like an unspeakable uh, <laughs> figure in magic. And I mean, I know lots of people who have said this, that, oh, you know, you can't speak about Malini, his material. Everyone who knows anything is not talking. But I don't see why he would be any more uh, you know, off limits as a subject matter than anyone else. And, you know, if we have books about any of the other greats in magic, I, I don't see why Malini has been you know, so, so uh, kind of uh, idealized that we wouldn't yeah. be able to talk about it. It's funny. It's, it's very funny. Um, I, I think, I mean, in many ways, I think this book has blown off that, that veneer of, uh, you know, of, uh, of secrecy and, and there's, because I don't think that there was any need to have that secrecy. And so now pretty much everything I could find in magic and anything that I've discovered about Malini's life is in this book. Yeah. You know, the, um, it's interesting about Malini. There are three magicians. There, there are actually more than this on my list, but there are three in particular that I really wish I could go back in time and see perform. Um, mm. One of them is Nate Leipzig. I just always have been curious about, you know, how elegant he must have been doing what he's doing, I assume. Uh, another one is Paul Rossini. And mm-hmm. Paul Rossini, for the same reason as Max Malini, actually, which is this. I said to Jay Marshall one time, because I read the Rossini book when it came out. Right. And I said, you know, I've read this book, but I don't understand. I don't understand Rossini. I said, what was it about him that made him so great? And Jay Hmm. said, you know, it was just him. It was just, you know, well, you know, well, what was it that made Channing Pollock so great? Well, did you ever see him walk into a room? That's how you, that's how, you know, and it's that kind of thing. And the same thing with Max Bellini. I think uh, the great secret of the book is that there are no great secrets. There are small little things. uh, And of course, I think Malini's great, uh, well, first of all, being born with balls of brass probably uh, was not a a bad thing or learning how to, uh, you know, to develop balls of brass. But his understanding of what his limitations were physically, simply because of his stature and the way he was built... He worked out stuff that um, fit him, and it fit him right. perfectly. You know, right. the, the, the old um, the saying about how long do you wait, I, I wait a week. Um, there's more to that sentence than most people who quote it, because it isn't just waiting a week. It's having something to say while you're waiting that week. And that's, I think, one of the great things about Malini is because he not only had his technical magical skills, but he had the gift of gab. Absolutely. Well, here's the thing. um, In one of the appendices of the book, there's a a very long talk that was given by Ozzy Malini, and I transcribed the entire talk. And you can hear from Ozzy. Now, Ozzy spoke English beautifully, and he was an incredibly eloquent speaker. His father, on the other hand, butchered the English language. 
and and the stories that that Ozzy Mooney was, was telling were the stories that Max Mooney would use in his performance. He would be telling the stories of performing for kings and queens. He'd be telling the stories of performing for Al, Al, uh, Al Capone. He'd be telling the stories about all these, you know, these escapades that he's been having. And, you know, because of that, this, the, his performance was colored with these magnificent tales. So, like you said, he did have something to say. And he had things that were amazing and engaging. And, you know, it was always, there was always something happening when Mulaney was around. If he's balancing something on his finger or if he's spinning something or if he's like doing a one-handed cut and doing, he did, he was a cardist, a cardist. He did cardistry, you yeah. know, like before we even had a word for it. Um, I, I've always found this part fascinating um, when he did that eggs, uh, the eggs and glasses stunt, you know, where yep. he would hit the tray out and make the, the eggs fall into the, the water glasses. Um, that was prefaced or preceded by a whole session of cardistry where he would do double-handed, one-handed cuts and card springing and a boomerang card and have the named cards end up in between two, you know, named aces uh, in, in a boomerang. So, you know, he was doing all sorts of like, fiddly, goofy things with his hands. And that was part of the whole presentation. And then finally, there would be the big blow up. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's funny because you do list um, three or four of uh, Molini's actual stage programs as recorded by people who were in the audience. And it is interesting that he closed his show with the egg stunt. I mean, it's really an right. interesting thing. Um, Isn't it? It's almost, uh, you know, I've had this discussion with some people that, you know, you talk about uh, the idea of a guy being on next to closing in a variety show that that's the premier spot to be is on next to closing mm, because sure. the closing act is something very flashy dancing girls or what have you big uh, spectacular stage number. And so right. that's really what I think sort of what Malini did because the closing number was the stuff with the cards. Yes. But then the, but then the encore, the, you know, it almost feels like it's an encore kind of a thing and it's flashy right. and it's visual and you don't have to think about it. There's no cerebral stuff. It's just a big flashy ending. So. Right. And audiences Mar- will always applaud skill, you know, so they see someone do something which is apparently skillful. So they're going to just give them a big hand at the end of the act. Right. Right. Um, uh, we'll get some, be a little inside baseball here, but one thing in the, that, and like I say, what I look for are the very small things that I had never heard before about particular moves. So for example, for years, I mean, I got stars of magic when I was, boy, I don't know, 13, 14 years old, something like that. And I'd been interested in magic for, you know, six years by that point of time, six, seven years. Anyway, um, trying to learn that color change of Malini's Mm -hmm. where the hand comes straight down. Right. And it was only in the last decade or so that I realized this is just the Houdini color change from Erdnays, but done right. off the bottom instead of the second card from the top. And I couldn't right. figure out, well, why would you do it that way? Because after all, the hand coming down so severely toward the floor is not the most natural gesture right. in the world. But there was one tiny thing there that I hadn't thought about. And that is that the deck had a slight tilt toward the floor Mm. at an angle so that when Molini's hand with the card palmed off the bottom of the deck, if you looked down on it, you couldn't see that corner because the hand was... So now this whole thing makes sense to me. 
it's it's not that this is a, a superior way to do this move, but it was the only way Malini could do this move because he couldn't right. do the other one because a corner of the card would peek out. Right. And, so, the, and the other part to always keep in mind with Malini is that he was five foot one. So everyone was looking down on him. I mean, yeah. not you know because of his uh, personality. They were looking down on him physically because he was so tiny. And, um, and so that forced perspective also makes it look like you're seeing exactly what he wants you to see. There's yeah. really no other angle that you could see it from to betray a, a hidden corner. Yeah. So, you know, I think that was another detail that I, I, I tried to emphasize is that, you know, he was doing things to work for his forced perspective. Whereas in our case, and, you know, people who are of normal, normal height or, you know, taller even, you might have to turn, turn your body one way or the other to be able to mimic what he was able to accomplish. Right, right. Um, so anyway, that's, I just wanted to mention that because I, that, that really turned a light bulb on. And I said, ah, mm. okay, I, that solves that question because, you know, otherwise I wonder why, why would anyone care? Sure, um, sure. The other uh you know, so I guess lesson one from the book is this idea of fearlessness, which uh, is something that everybody has to figure out for themselves how to, uh, I mean, you did the same thing when you decided to sort of follow this path by going into uh, bars and what have you and just sitting down and trying to mm-hmm. do some tricks and get some stuff going. I I, I lack the nerve to be able to do that. But um, the other thing that... Uh, so beyond that, the other thing that I think that is the great lesson from Molini is this idea of getting way, way ahead of everybody in terms of what you've set up for and what you're right. prepared to do. Right. I, I mean, uh, there's probably, well, I know a few people, uh, you know, contemporaneous friends of ours today who are that way, you know, they're always looking around, always looking to see what's the What's the sure. thing C- that I casing, can do? Casing, the, casing joint. the joint. Yeah, absolutely casing the joint. But um, what's interesting about Molini was he was more than happy to set up a dozen things and maybe one of them pays off or maybe right, right. two and then just to walk away from it and come back later. It's, and it's leave like, it there oh. for next time that he visits that venue. So I, I really love the story. Um, and, and by the way, in, in many cases, this actually lines up with something you wrote about, Michael, in one of your workers' books. I can't remember whether it was workers four, four or five, um, about assumptions, about that the audience assumes that the performance begins when the magician starts the show. Um, but in any case, Molini started his show potentially a year before you even walked into that room. Exactly. Uh, because... He would he did uh, he would plant playing cards in various hotels that he knew he'd be returning to on another trip around the world. Yeah. So he might, for example, plant the you know jack of spades behind the pendulum of a grandfather clock in the lobby of a hotel in Shanghai, and he knows that every time he comes to Shanghai, he's going to be staying at that same hotel. So imagine knowing that there's a card behind a pendulum, and you walk back into that hotel a year later and having that power. It's really like a superpower oh, to be able to manage force a duplicate jack of spades on someone and then say, look where it is now. It ended up behind the pendulum and that, oh, that grandfather clock, even though he just walked in from off the, off the boat. Yeah. Um, there were some things, of course, that um, uh, were possible in Molini's day that simply you can't get away with uh now uh, simply because things have changed litigiousness has changed i'm not so sure have you ever have uh, i mean have you ever walked up to a, somebody who wasn't aware that you were a magician and bite a button off 
somebody's. I've never done the biting. The biting part, I don't do. I have pulled off the button multiple times. I've done that that stunt a whole bunch, probably about I don't know about twenty or thirty times. Uh, So I've got a bunch of buttons with you know extra thread, and they're all different sorts of colors and fabric coverings and whatnot. So that you ha- find one that matches one, of, you find someone who's wearing a button that matches one of your duplicates, and then you're able to then pretend to pull off their button. And there's several different techniques that are included, uh, you know, here. Um, but but biting the button, I wouldn't do that. You know, the f- funny thing is that Malini, like I said, was five foot one, so for him, you know, <laughs> to be able to bite your button off, he didn't really have on his toes or bent down very much he was just right there at eye level so he just kind of reached down and just you know snagged snagged it off of your your jacket um and showed it at his teeth i would yeah these days you'd never get away with that and especially you know the story about him performing this in the halls of congress in the united states congress in the capitol building to go up to senator mark Hanna from ohio and just say excuse me senator and just reach down i mean the the levels of security in in congress now are immensely stronger than they were back in Mooney's day. Oh yeah, exactly. And you know, I think there again is uh, Mulaney's size, uh, you know, sort of came to his rescue. If he'd been six, five and uh, you know, built like a wrestler, I'm not so sure if some guy bends down and comes at you, you're going to not think that you're about to be attacked as opposed to somebody who's uh, five, one. Um, right. I think I think the other thing that uh, oh, yes, yes, my that's, that's my golden doodle. I think you have one too. I do have a golden doodle. Yeah, which uh, uh, she loves to get on the show, but she's uh, upstairs right now. Um, I was also going to say one other thing that I think that Malini did was he was in no hurry to correct his English. I mean, right. let's let's face it. You know, he'd been in the United States for a lot of years. He could certainly, had he wanted to, uh, learn the correct way to uh, pronounce things and what have you and protocols. But it was really, it almost reminds me to some extent of the way uh, Juan Tomaris uses the language to his advantage when he's working in English. You know, he gets this moment of confusion where all of a sudden you feel sorry for this guy who doesn't understand. And he's playing you the whole you know, the whole hundred percent. I mean, I like to say that, that Malini spoke English like a kosher butcher. Yeah. And he played it up. You know, that was part of his whole shtick. In fact, there's that wonderful line where, um, you know, Ozzy, his son said to him, dad, you know, you have to learn how to speak English better or probably get you better paying gigs. And Malini said to his son, the moment I, I, I speak English good, there's no food on the table. <laughs> you yeah, exactly. You don't, if I speak English good, you don't eat. So um, let's talk a little bit, because this is one of the things, and I mentioned this to you before we started recording, but uh, Malini made a fabulous amount of money during his lifetime. I mean, he was so highly paid. And of course, there were gigs that he would take no money for simply because he did it just for the publicity of having worked for this sure. person and gotten a, sure. something to put in his scrapbook that he could show for future gigs. But yet he died broke. What were what was his financial downfall? Did he just live too extravagantly? Well, I don't know if he lived extravagantly at all. I mean, he did like to buy nice clothes. And he, you know, he was known as he, his son said that he dressed like a dude. Which in in those days meant you dressed like a very fancy uh, dandy kind of a man. And yeah. if you look at all the photos that we include in the book, they're 
are many pictures of him just dressed up with like, you know, feathered rims around his caps and, uh, you know, really fancy canes that he would wear and expensive shoes, et cetera. But I think that most of his, the reason for his downfall was that the fact that he was an alcohol, alcoholic and also that he was a gambler. Ah. So he didn't keep his money, couldn't keep it. And he would uh, go off and do these these extravagant parties and you know, play at, at extravagant parties and treat everyone for, to dinner. And it was all on Molini. So, uh, you know, you can't keep that type of lifestyle up if the water if the money is is flowing like water out of your hands yeah i see i see it was uh yeah and, and you know one of the ways i tested that was to see if he was the owner of his final house in honolulu to see if his name was on the lease and so i went through the uh the housing commission in in honolulu to find out you know exactly whose name was on the lease that of his, his final home and in fact it was not him so that goes to show that he was actually a renter up until oh. his final days. And he lived in Hawaii for the past, you know, he, the final eight or nine years of his life. So, yeah. um, you know, just goes to show that even at the end of his life, when he could have potentially saved up all of his money and bought some place as his own, that he in fact hadn't. Amazing. Amazing. For those of you wondering about the magic uh, in this book, um, uh, and in particular, the tricks that you, have heard about about Malini there are there are two things going on one is Steve provides really exceptional detail for a lot of these routines and and the routines that you have been doing in the chamber magic show things like the card stab things like the, right. uh, the right. egg bag things like that uh, even the even the tricks like the the cane and, and what have you but um, but you have also and it's great that people have shared this information with you uh, been able to supplement that with really what are some of the best contemporary handlings of things like uh, John Carney's work on the lightning pull and um, David Alexander's work on the egg bag, which I don't right. think would have ever seen the light of day if it wasn't uh, in this book. And it certainly is right. a, a valuable thing because, um, you know, the uh, the thing I've discovered about those kind of props is they don't work for me because I can't figure out what to say while I do them. And the nice thing about the David Alexander thing is it gives something other than the kind of iconic Thompson uh, approach to that trick, you know, or, right. or uh, the, the uh, Jeff Hobson one, which, I mean, these are so personality driven that right. I, I look at them and I go, I have no way I can do anything like this. These guys have said everything I need sure. to say, but but sure. having one like the David Alexander one, which is a little bit more generic in terms of being applicable to a performance style, uh, right. are really great to have. Yeah, I was very fortunate to come across that resource and other resources of other contemporary magicians. For example, Bill Malone was able to connect me with a great manuscript, a short manuscript that was written by Bob Stencil, um, oh, yes. know, Malone's good friend about the cut and restored rope. Then it was a handling of the cut and restored rope that actually helps make it a more convincing cut. And the rope doesn't look all twisted and funny, uh, you know, because of a, a contemporary idea that Bob Stencil had. So I was happy to include that as well as Bob Sheets, who, as we know, has been performing the Molini card stab for decades and has you know made a career, you know, out of that, uh, of his performance of that. And he was for, he was very kind to spend a long time with me teaching me his not the not the exact handling but his um, tips on how to handle 
the card stab in general and yeah. that Molini was likely you know using many of these ideas as well because he performed it throughout his entire life he started performing it in the 1890s so wow. you know if you think about it i've got one of the earliest recollection earliest records of Molini performing the card stab the blindfolded card stab was about eight years before it ever appeared in the expert at the card table by Erdnace wow. as the divining rod right so wow. that's really interesting right you, th- you tend to think that that okay, maybe he got the idea from Erdnace and then expanded it from a single card to eight or ten cards. But I have a record of him performing the trick years before Erdnace was even written. Wow, wow, that, that, it's really amazing. It's really and and remarkably useful for those who are going to take the time to add these tricks to their repertoires. I mean, uh, you know, even the work on something as something that we tend to dismiss out of hand, like uh, the coin fold. Um, mm. you know, there's, there's work on these tricks. There's absolutely work on these tricks that elevate them above what everybody assumes they are going to, uh, they're going to be, True. um, it, uh, it very much, it's, it's very interesting to have, uh, sort of be looking at this book back to back with, uh, the new Eugene Berger book, uh, not new, but the one that came out in late October of last year, uh, that Larry Haas and Eugene wrote, um, to be able to get a feel for a performer through the written word is is a difficult thing. So I congratulate mm-hmm. you on that. I mean, of course, with Eugene, uh, I have the benefit of having been a friend and I hear his voice as I read his words. But I think you set sure. up the whole, uh, not only do you set up the whole you know, idea of how he looked and how he sounded, but having so many written examples of, of encounters of people who interacted with him and saw his show uh, really helps to flesh him out into a a living, breathing human being. And not just this guy that, uh, Mm. you know, uh, was out there at one point in time. Yeah. Thank you. I wanted to find, I wanted to include a lot of contemporaneous essays about Malini so that you can see what people of his era were saying, you know, that's in other words, if we're, if it's just us talking back, Oh, I wonder what he was like, or he must've been like this. That's one thing, you know, that's just assumption. But if we have his contemporaries telling us, this is what I just saw last night, or this is what he performed at the SAM meeting when he came to the, you know, the golden gate assembly, or this is what he performed when he did the, these shows in, in Shanghai, you know, these are people who, who saw it and then they're writing up essays, you know, for their own record, their own recollection later on to be able to, I mean, again, I've been scouring, collections and auctions and and databases for years to be able to accumulate all this information but then i was able to then put them into the right spots and being able to put drop them into the right location in each part of the book where you know the stories about him performing the blindfolded card stab are all in one place and all the stories of him and there's like 20 pages of you know blindfolded card stab details and then you know all the details of him performing the block of ice production or details of finding you know of of, uh, his coin magic and his cigar magic and you all it's all there and i just tried to find stories that were relevant to each of those tricks right that it kind of fits into the right it makes it, it rounds everything out a little bit more uh, and it's, again, here's another example of the way that I look at things that I find interesting. What, what I found uh, really valuable about having all that information there is the discrepancy between what we know must have happened and yet what the spectators who saw it, who are writing about it, remember that happened. Sure, sure, I mean, sure. And this is, um, this is such an important thing because 
You know, if there's one thing Molini was great at, it was leaving the spectators with a story. But uh, how distorted that story became uh, after the fact is is interesting to me because I Agreed. believe I believe there's a an art to accomplishing that in, with intention when you're performing of always working to be distorting the memory and distorting the truth of a particular situation is, true, uh, is true. really valuable. True. Um, Can I have so what, for a second? So, so what I remember I had a great conversation with Eugene Berger uh, after he came to see my show in New York and he said, he said, Steve, the best part of your performance of think a drink is that everyone remembers it wrong. <laughs> and I love when he said that, and I, I can't imitate Eugene as well as any, you know, some other guys can, but I just love when he said, everyone remembers it wrong. And, and I was like, what do you mean? He's like, and then he went into the details of like what my, I actually performed and what people took away from it. Uh, and that's, I mean, there's an, like I say, there's an art to that. And it's, it's such an extraordinary uh, a challenge to pull that off. Uh, it's really it's great. Well, I love the book. Uh, you had the opportunity, and I had uh, a slightly different opportunity uh, to work with uh, Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro at Nightmare Alley. Uh, yes. I, w- I was only behind the scenes, but you were able to uh, get in a, in one of the scenes that, sadly, as with much of the magic, never made the final cut of the movie. But uh, True. he was a great guy to, to know and a great guy to uh, work with. Uh, Agreed. Your experience, I think, was probably pretty fun. Oh, it was extraordinary, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Uh, so, so basically, so Guillermo came to my show in New York three times, and the first time he came, I didn't even know who he was. I wasn't a fan of his movies. I didn't know anything about him. I didn't even see his name on on the guest list. I think he came with somebody else. And then he came again about maybe five or six years later. And by that point, I had already seen some of his work, and I was really impressed to have him in the audience because of his, you know his stature in the film business. And then we stayed in touch, um, sending little emails here and there. He invited me to the premiere of Shape of Water and, you know, just casual little notes back and forth. And then he came, he actually wrote to me, he said, I'd like to come to your show, but I want to bring some of the stars of my next film, meaning Bradley Cooper. And I said, okay, sure. So he booked um, six, t- six seats, which I comped him in, all six of those tickets. And he came to the show. Um, and the seat where we had set aside for Bradley was actually filled by someone else. And I looked over and I said, why is this? I- I'm doing the show now, looking at this guy saying, you're not Bradley Cooper. Um, and I'm thinking, what's going on here? It turns out it was Bradley's close friend, one of his best friends. Uh-huh. And Bradley, ha- Bradley had been stuck uh, with a babysitting issue because he's a single dad. Yeah. So he wasn't able to make it to the show. And that's an important detail, which I'll tell you why I'm telling you this detail in a second. After the, the show is over, and this now, remember, Guillermo's third time seeing uh, the show. Um, he stuck around for about, I'd say about an hour afterwards. And he just was chatting about this, chatting about magic, chatting about that. And then he pulled me aside and he said, Steve, I'd like you to be in my next film. Would you like to have a cameo? And I said, I don't even have to think about this. The answer is yes. And um, so, so I thought maybe this would never happen. But about two or three weeks later, I got a call from the costume fitter saying, you know, what, what size shirt do you wear? What's your neck size? What's your pants size? What's your shoe size, et cetera. And I was like, this is really happening. So um, anyway, 
this is literally right before the pandemic began. So yeah. my, my, my shooting was in Buffalo in late February. And um, I came up and I had two scenes with Bradley. Um, I was playing a locksmith character, which is not, in, again, not in the final cut, but is I made my character made the keys for, uh, for Stanton Carlisle to get into uh, Lilith's office. So right. whenever remember, there's a, a scene where he like he makes a wax impression of the keys. Exactly. And the next scene, you see him walking down the hall, jingling a set of keys. Well, the scene that we shot was me making the keys for him and, uh, and him bribing me to make the the keys because I was after hours. Um, so, any in any event, there, there was another scene that we we shot, shot also, which made the locks for um, to break into the mansion uh, on the hill. Uh, so in any case, why did I tell you that story about? about uh, the the babysitting issue when i first met bradley on set he walked over to me and the first thing he said he said steve i'm so sorry that i missed your show i couldn't make it that night because of babysitter i heard it was fantastic i'm so sorry i missed it i'm definitely coming to your show and i thought to myself you know something this is my first time meeting him and for an a-list celebrity to come over and say that really shows you a lot about his character about his personality He's, and what a great guy to be able to say that. And we spent, we spent, you know, about probably like, you know, 20 or 30 minutes aside from the shooting, just chatting and showing him some magic. And then again, also at the premiere, same sort of thing. We probably spent about 45 minutes or so together. And he was just the nicest guy to work with. And uh, I was really, you know, it was, it was an honor to be part of that. Yeah. He was, um, he was a delight. I went to New York for a couple of days to work with him. Uh, but then during the course of the, uh, break for the pandemic they sort of where they shot the second half of the film first which is why right you were doing that in uh in buffalo because this is the part of the film where uh molly and uh stanton are established as a duo right uh, m- mentalism act uh but they basically shifted the magic away from bradley's character which in the original script was somebody who'd been interested in it since he was a kid Right. Uh, and shifted it to the character that uh, David Strathairn played, the uh, Pete. Uh, right. w- w- but then for he did that great. Uh, he did that great cigarette production, which I assume you taught him. Oh yeah. Uh, there's a setup. Great. There's a setup to it that got cut. I'm hoping all these little bits of things um, are in the uh, are in the uh, director's cut of this because this could be a very long movie with all the stuff they left out. But, yeah, it was three uh, and a half hours got cut down by to two twenty. Wow, wow. Yeah, so 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 your your bits and my bit my scenes were cut out in the hour and a half hour and ten minutes that didn't make it exactly. But um, I actually pitched that that moment to uh, Guillermo and Kim uh, because originally it was just uh, Pete uh, looking for a cigarette and not having one and and then walking out and. I said to him, maybe it would be fun if it looks like he doesn't have a cigarette and Bradley offers him one and then he produces it, you know, like it's just a little screw you kind of a, you know, kind of a moment. So the production looked great on, on TV, on, on, on the screen. I mean, Uh, but it's unfortunate there wasn't a little set up in front of it anyway. You know, one, one of the best parts of that, that cigarette production was it seemed like even more than it was. And I asked the editor um, who came to, to visit me about, uh, about six months or so ago, um, maybe less than that, actually, maybe like three months or so ago. 
I said, how did you make that cigarette production look so good? He said, sound effects. Ah. So if you watch it again, when you watch him produce the cigarette, you hear a sound. And it also makes it seem like more than just a cigarette production. It's almost like there's some magical, you know, sound moment. Interesting. Where it it, it gets pulled out of of nowhere, out of the air. So watch it again and and watch that cigarette appear in your head. And there's a little moment where it's actually impacted by the sound. That's great. That's really great. Um, so when will uh, the, the Malini book be available for all these fine people who will be chomping at the bit? I know. Oh, my God. Yeah, I wish it was, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate to have three copies here. And then uh, the publisher has three copies in Chicago. Uh, the rest of the books are, as we speak, on a ship from uh. Singapore uh, being shipped over to uh, through the Panama Canal and then to here in New York. And then they'll be trucked out to Chicago, and then they'll be able to be distributed. So with all said and done, we're looking at an April distribution. Uh, now, as we do this, this conversation, it's late January. So if people can wait three more weeks, three more months, <laughs> they'll be, be able to have the books in their own hands. But I wanted to tell you something else, uh, Mike, which yes. I think you'll find fascinating. So if you remember in the book, I give a lot of background of Molini's performances in Asia. Yes. And, you know, we talk about pre-World War I uh, China, and we talk about pre-World War I Japan, and um, also, of course, between World War I and World War II. All of this information would be fine for any history book to, to, you know, to write about or to, to disseminate um, to people in the modern day, unless you live in China. And if you're a Chinese, oh. if you're a Chinese publisher, you're not going to publish information or maps or illustrations of the flag of China from you know the early early twentieth century because it goes counter to what they you know want to, people to to understand in the current geopolitical climate. So we actually had pushback from the Chinese censors who were this book was going to be printed in Hong Kong, and the censors went through the manuscript and said, "No, you have to change this. You have to change that." And they pulled oh. out numerous not just a couple, but numerous spots where they said, you're going to have to rewrite this or remove these illustrations or remove these, uh, these, these photographs. Wow. And I'm, I said, I'm not going to change the history book because of something that the Chinese government doesn't want people to hear. Um, and I've heard the same sort of story from Bill Kalush. He said some of his Jibrissier issues that were supposed to have been printed in Hong Kong uh, for the Conjuring Arts Research Center were, were censored by the Chinese censors because they showed maps of China that showed different boundaries and different geographical points that oh, they didn't want the current goodness. Chinese people to have access to. And so he, like myself, had to have the book published in, other, in another facility. And our book was published in Singapore um, and fortunately has been put onto the ship right before the Chinese New Year. So as far as I know, there's going to be no, you know, no, delay, no further delays in its... Uh, transport to the U.S., but in the world that we live in with the supply chain, who knows yeah. how long that will wow. take. One of, one of my plans is there's a great website which is called Ship Tracker, and there's there's numerous sites like this, but you should check it out though, Michael. Um, Ship Tracker allows you to follow in real time the location of any ship in the ocean in the world. Wow. And if you go on Ship Tracker, you can watch. It's it's almost like watching a swarm of bees moving from place to place and the number of ships at any given time in the ocean and in various ports is just immense. You cannot wrap your head around it. It's, it's like counting grains of sand. 
And so, you, however, knowing the exact location of a specific or the name of a specific ship, you can track that ship's location in the ocean. And so what I plan to do is get the name of our ship and I'll put up on Facebook and on Instagram, but, you know, various uh, updates of how close the ship is <laughs> to the Panama Canal and through the Panama Canal, et cetera, until it reaches your hands. Wow. An adventure. Definitely an adventure. Well, um, Malini circled the world in steamships. I thought this makes a lot of sense. And that in itself is extraordinary. Uh, that in itself is an extraordinary thing. Think about that. Well, Steve Cohen, it has been a delight to catch up with you again and to speak a little bit. And uh, congratulations on uh, Max Malini, magician of King of Magicians, Magician of Kings, which of course, unfortunately, always reminds me of Danny Kay and the Court Jester, uh, <laughs> which was Giacomo, King of Jesters, Jester of Kings. It's That's right. One- I love that. I love that. That's one of my favorite, one of my favorite movies. Yep. It was certainly the chalice one from of the my... palace has the brew that is true. <laughs> the flagon with the dragon has the pestle with the poison. See, that's right. See what happens when you get old guys together reminiscing about movies that nobody has ever heard of. Um, anyway, it's been a delight. I am so happy about the book. It uh, just answered all kinds of questions for me and uh, certainly is uh an amazing example of magicians understanding that it's not what you do, it's how you do it. Uh, because that was certainly the case uh, of Max Molini. Um, right. It's not what you do. And it's not how you do it. It's who does it. If who the who is it? right, if the who is right, then the what and the how must be right. Yeah. Yeah. Remarkable, remarkable things. Um, be safe, be well, continued success for your show. I'm so happy that uh, it's a thing that, uh, has lasted uh, this time and continues to find an audience uh, and be safe and be well. And uh, I'll catch you up with you down the road. Steve Cohen, thanks for being here. I sure appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. This has been another conversation with close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please be sure to tell your friends like us on Facebook at Michael close magic. Follow us on Twitter at Mike close magic and visit our website michaelclose.com. If you'd like to help support these podcasts, you can do that at anchor.fm slash michaelclose. In that way, we can continue to bring you high quality content. Until next time, so long from the Great White North.